are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. I'm Shailene. I work at the Pratt Library in the Fiction Department, and welcome to Poetry and Conversation. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. Okay, but tonight is very special. We're thrilled to be hosting Hilary Jackman, Greg Williamson, and Michelle Wolf. And um, we're going to proceed like this. Um, each of the poets will read for a little while. Um, we're, they're going to read in alphabetical order. <laughs> by their last names, and then we'll have some time for a Q&A at the table here. And finally, each poet will read a closing poem, and hopefully there'll be a bit of time to chat and buy books at the end. We're um, selling books by all these wonderful poets just outside the door there. hope everyone will pick up at least one book. Um, all right, so I'm going to begin by introducing Hillary. Hilary S. Jackman's first book of poems, Missing Persons, was published by Wayweiser Press in spring 2017. She earned her BA from Wesleyan, her MA from the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins, and her MFA from the University of Florida. She lives in Baltimore, where she is an associate production editor at Johns Hopkins University Press. Her work has appeared in 32 poems, Painted Bride Quarterly, Hank, Best New Poets, Diagram Field, and elsewhere. The poet James Arthur writes of Hilary Jackman, she patiently, faithfully seeks out real mysteries and works to articulate them in all their strangeness. She does this, I think, through the rich, surprising sounds and details she fixes on. For instance, there is this astonishing description of a couple's attempt to live together. We shared a grease-soaked paper bag of onion rings, hands pale with salt, as constant as New England snow, then watched the float glass windows cast an iceberg on our bedroom wall. There is a harshness here and coldness that spell trouble for romance, but the more we meditate on phrases like onion rings pale with salt or float glass windows, the more we find, too, traces of beauty and tenderness with its potpourri of conflicting emotions and its hopeless hopefulness, the coupling begins to suggest our own daily efforts at intimacy seen in a new way. We want to return to the glimmering rooms of these poems again and again, writes poet Jean Dubreau. Please help me to welcome Hilary Jackman. Thank you so much, and thanks to the Enoch Pratt Library for hosting this. <clears throat> I'd like to start with a poem called The Army Bride. The night you call me from Fort Hood, I cinch my cherry rickrack apron tight and leave a fryer popping on the stove. Hey, Laura Ashley, I'm so tan, you brag. My butt is bronzed. The sun's the one good thing about Texas. I picture you belly down on your waterbed, kiss curls bobbed with Comanche pool chlorine, painting your nails oil slick or smog. I'm bored, you moan. Jake's been deployed to Bagram. He always cooked, so now I'm living on Nutella and Tex-Mex. You don't know anyone except some rednecks from the temple typing pool who aren't into early kung fu films. 
your neighbors. Well, you bought a Glock. At night, you tiki torch the living room, balance an Afghan scimitar on your hip and belly dance. You've nailed snake arms and camel rolls. Last month, you scored a gig at some Moroccan dive near Waco. No shit, I laugh and crack a Pabst, then chug. Three hours, 60 bucks, plus all the grape leaves I could eat. The blackened chicken's black. It blisters in the frying pan. If you drive down, we'll stone crab on the gulf, or I'll move up and room with you. You'll love my harem pants. They're coin-flecked, semi-sheer. Someday, I murmur, fingers crossed. I'm just so fucking lonesome here, you sigh. In my cramped kitchenette, the smoke alarm is going off. A roadside bomb you barely hear. The next poem is called Food Editor, Electricity on the Farm Magazine. This was a real magazine. I don't know how long it was published, but um, my great aunt, Mitzi Cohen, uh, was the food editor uh, beginning in the 1960s. And I was so taken with this concept um, of a, a woman living in Manhattan, editing a magazine for a rural audience um, that I wrote this poem. Sequestered in her corner office, sands Hudson River views, she settles up her final IOUs. A salaried girl, her marriage all but over, she zips and unzips her own mackerel gray suit. She's learned to broil steak Diane for one and memorize the West Side locals' thunder. At night, in her low-rent efficiency, she drafts nut graphs on errant blow-in cards. Her best reporters, sick of pre-electric farms, failed fudge cake recipes, and falling revenues, defect to vogue. Her fault, she fears. In her His Girl Friday haze, she chain smokes, picturing Rosalind Russell's set chin and snap brim comebacks, so unlike her own engraved commands. Now watch her sift white sugar super fine, Blue pencil snapped beside the test kitchen spun down microwave, her face a battered pearl. Still drawn, despite small claims and charms, to work's frail constancy. Sex Ed. Mr. McIntyre warned us, his voice a pocket square soaked in motor oil. The modern world was made of rape and murder. In the Value City parking lot, strange men would superglue our sedan locks. They'd slide beneath those cold car bodies and wait to slash our coy ankles. Other men might cop a corkscrew feel on the Big Dipper or press a pistol to our tube tops on the Superior bus. The lesson there was don't get off the bus, like we were Rosa Parks in the diminutive, driven not towards action but away our body politic so apolitical, we could barely snap our uncrossed legs shut. Solo peril, then, was nearly everything. A vacant packing plant, the ungloved hands of the orthodontist, nirvana, boyfriends, or a baby roof. It was the sawdust down on a young girl's clavicle, the way her stomach swelled like durian. Picture a water birth lit like a snuff film. Mr. McIntyre straddled his chair and leaned in closer, 
his cheekbones straight razors. Before this gig, he'd been a sad male model. Still almost diamond cut as Tyson Beckford were the slopes at Boston Mills, he gazed at us like we were already dead. Ladies, for your own good, scream. You've got to move like Crisco on a griddle. But most of us would not be raped in dead malls or grocery stores. None of us would be discovered hot-boned at the Parma Gem and Mineral Show. Of course, we'd never taste tasteless rohypnol. We'd never even leave northern Ohio. Instead, at 40, we'd throw our backs out or miscarry again. Work wouldn't pay. Our shrinks would raise their rates and shake their heads. Why didn't anyone teach us that we'd lose our balsam health, our equipoise, well before we lost our breath? or that our adult lives would mean not the smudging out of purity, but an endless progress towards our orphaning. Dead mothers, brothers flattened from Vicodin or spastic bowel, fathers irradiating in cramped oncology wards. Our terminus was something like Illyria, flat, unstoppable, and endless sprawl. We could scream until we tasted blood, scramble, unsnap our bodysuits, or grab a fire iron from the wall. It didn't matter. Soon our bodies, male and female both, wouldn't be our bodies, and the quarter moon would rise like a machete. Soon the film strip of the Cuyahoga would catch fire. Then, thank God, we'd sleep. The next poem is called Jughead Midlife. I read a lot of Archie comics when I was growing up. And if you're not familiar, Jughead is known for being skinny as a rail, obsessed with food, especially burgers and milkshakes, and really grossed out by women. He's not a dater. In Tokyo, the long dream of Riverdale fades like spilled Hidoshino nest. Who was I back then? Seventeen, my stomach an empty eel, no eye for women. I knew my way around a short sheet. I knew Big Ethel's tears must taste like celery salt, and what the secret S stood for on my ringer tea, and how to bang out sex and candy on a drum kit. Eyes shut, some dumb mystic, I could predict whether a random tin can buoyed spam or chaw or licorice altoids. But high school ended, and everybody scattered. Even Archie lost his knack for wise-ass love triangles. At Oberlin, I found the food was infinite and infinitely bad. Reese trap soft serve bristled albumen. I slept through pornography writing of prostitutes. I slept through everything until they didn't ask me back. And that was it for me. I mean, I lost my appetite for Rutz Hut Rippers, fake IDs, and Philadelphia story. My cut-up beanie badged with stars. My belief that pure Americana, that anything could be finagled. Now I make my way past love hotels and rabbit cafes, one hapless expat among the salarymen. The subway smells like cut salami. Is this Japan? or just an afterlife where nobody likes cheese. Every pal I knew back then is bankrupt, mortgaged, or screwing someone on the side. Their kids have eyes as tight as ticks. So I couldn't face the entropy of growing up. 
Here, I might be strange, but at least the sunsets flame like diesel gasoline, and the noodles are all hand-pulled alkaline. It tastes good, is what I'm saying, like gold. Salt-packed, uncomplicated as a demo reel. I still don't know what turns a woman's buckwheat gaze, but I can melt pork bones into tonkatsu broth, and I've learned some breakaway Japanese. Unbroken pleasures larded, like kaidama. It's a soft-cooked egg. Man-eater. She cornered me at the copier to gloat about blind dates in oyster bars, the suits, investment bankers, Swiss economists, who Amex blacked plateaus of fouille de mer, two dozen blue points mounted belly up on mounds of diamond salt, or blinnies flecked with czar imperial, then ringed with snails. She flirted with each Gucci'd money man, downed double G and T's in back bay walk-ups, flashed a little or a lot of leg, but braless, cinched in strapless silk, resisted bedding them. She porked the king of kosher meat instead. The Jew, she bragged, at least the Hasidim think I'm some loose Sephardi banished from the tribe, the kind of semi-shiksa you show off to Rabbi Gold. I keep reminding Max I'm just a Spanish girl from San Jose who can't tell Zit Zit from Kasha Varnish case, but he's convinced I shit you not that we're swept up in some postmodern West Side story. Did I mention that on our third date I cooked him shrimp and grits with bacon grease? He licked the Wedgwood clean. Quasi-heroic, too, was each pedestrian disaster she relayed in hyperbolic tones. Her papillon, that epileptic mutt whose piss destroyed a parquet floor, her stolen Mazda, stripped, stuck up on blocks, a kind of blessing, no more parking tickets. Each tragedy took a month to tell, but even working overtime, half numb from hunger, I couldn't wait to hear the next outrageous narrative. Her verve, her braggadocio, her ex-fiance let her keep the princess cut engagement ring, was awe-inspiring. She spun those tales like some low-rent Scheherazade, as if her life depended on the ark. She'd storm in breathless, late, her fitted suit and eggplant gleam, and spill her guts. Blowjobs, blown job interviews, or porterhouses black with truffle butter. It was all the same to her, an equivalence of passion. She works for light and power now, some office straddling a strike-slip fault. When darkness falls, I hear, it barely strafes her. Divorced, remarried, seven months along, she play-acts all the smutty bits in cock and bull. She's equal parts cracked solitaire and scorched torsion, still digging on her knees for something missing, a stack of naked Polaroids, a secret wedding band, always finding it. I'll end with North Shore. I wrote this when I lived in the Boston area, and winter lasted forever. Those Cambridge weekends, bored by office boilerplate, the works and days of slush, and every stalled commute to Harvard Yard, we chipped my sea glass forward from its eternal snowbank. We took 1A to Wonderland, 
past Greyhound Park's defunct dog track, past burnt out bars and factories embalmed in ice. Our industry was dying too. Each public beach and pie shack urged us north to Marblehead, where yacht clubs bent like birch and salt spray roses lined the crest of Windmill Hill. We came too late to crash the philanthropic lodge, to tour the old spite house or bid on spinnakers and fake antiques. Instead, in ice cleat Land's End boots, we tread the granite split between old town and new. Two wind-lashed privateers are coupled and uncoupled fears, as fierce and tenuous as love. Oh, thank you so much, Hillary. That was fantastic. Um, okay, so next reader is Greg Williamson. Greg is the author of four volumes of poetry, The Silent Partner, Errors in the Script, A Most Marvelous Piece of Luck, and The Whole Story of Kirby the Sneak and Arlo the True. He has received an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, a Waiting Writers Award, the Nicholas Vorick Prize, an NEA grant in poetry and others. His poetry has been published in more than 50 periodicals and several anthologies, including the Norton Anthology of Poetry. He teaches in the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University. The late great poet Richard Wilbur wrote about Greg Williamson's first book. He is concerned with such matters as the desire to shape the world, the risk of fraud and imposition in all shaping, and the fugitive nature of all orderings. His mind and eye combine splendidly to realize these themes. Close quote. Often, Greg's artistry is so splendid, it seems to me that it challenges his own concern about the limitations of artistry. For instance, a poem about taxidermy mocks the desire to stop time in lines so exquisite they seem to do just that. A more organic form would represent no animal at all, its lifetime having melted into air, but in a fairer attitude present an empty pedestal. And at the end of drawing hands, a downpour that seems to dissolve the poet's intentions is also something he can make delightful music of, the rain, which is what I came in out of for. The result of this tension is endlessly complex reading pleasure. Please help me welcome Greg Williamson. Thank you very much. <clears throat> um, I don't know where I should stand, but I never do. Um, I'm going to read from this book, which is called uh, The Last One, The Whole Story of Kirby the Sneak and Arlo the True. And it's about um, two, of, two of my dogs. One was a border collie named Kirby, and the other is a red-boned coonhound named, uh, named Arlo in the story. Um, and... Just going to start at the beginning, I guess. This really started as a dare. Um, it was meant to be maybe two or three pages. It ended up being two or three years. Um, but I'll try to introduce the characters. Um, is this okay? Yeah. All right, good. I hear you. <laughs> Kirby the Sneak and Arlo the True 
lived with the Burbles at House 42. And Arlo the True, Arlo Vanguard, watched over his everyday things in the yard. His fir tree and fuzzball, his wet bowl and bone, and Kismet the cat dog, who slept on a stone. And out in the yard by a uniform mound, his cherished cool dug up down hole in the ground. He'd looked in his heart back when he was a pup, and dug it a down hole instead of an up. He watched over everything, just to be sure that his where-are-they's all were still there where they were. It also has pictures. So if you don't like what I have to say, the pictures are awesome. I didn't do them. Now Kirby the Sneak, Kirby Manchu, of a thousand disguises, unbeaten at Clue, Dog Macum Laude from Trickery U, kept a keen eye on said Arlo the True. At the edge of the yard, past the reach of the law, he drew on his draw pipe. He peered at his paw. He drummed with his nails. He rocked in his chair. He twisted his whiskers and stared into air. And from under the brim of his sneaky slant hat, he schemed on the bowl and the bone and the cat. What game could he play? What ruse could he do to bamboozle the scrupulous Arlo the True? He could flip the bowl over to look like a lid so Arlo would wonder what was it it hid. He could bury the bone by the burbles' brook that sluices through shadows where sleuth hounds won't look. He could stuff the ball into a knot in the oak as phase one of a bigger, more practical joke that would take some straw bungee cords, clipboard a box, and some UPS browns with the Baden-Pal socks. But Arlo the True had a super good nose that could sniff out the grade in your back-to-school clothes or the adders of blue when the summer wind blows or the red in a black and white sketch of a rose. And Kirby the Sneak knew the true would discover a ball, ball or bone under whatever cover. So Kirby the Sneak tapped the brim of his hat and took a hard look at Dame Kismet the cat. Like go bark in her face, make her hiss, maybe scat. But there were a couple of problems with that. Kismet the cat, Kismet the wise, watched Kirby the Sneak through the slits in her eyes. That crepuscular hunter, that somnolent purr, that lightning strike wrapped up in quicksilver fur. She could hear a slug slide and the sneeze of a snail. She could make a cloud rain with the rings in her tail. She could leap off a lamppost and land on her feet and hear the small heart of a bumblebee beat. She could fly through the night on the back of a broom and see through pitch black in a windowless room and foretell if a girl would say yes to a groom or if sailors were heading for fair skies or doom. No, Felix Fantissimus, Kismet Meow, could not be snuck up upon no matter how. And for all his conniviness, tables and charts, his French curves and bar graphs and tactical arts and schematics and plumb bobs and contour maps of the quadrant, a transit and spring-loaded traps, one other discouraging serious flaw in the plan which the sneak almost instantly saw was that 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 cat had a very sharp claw, a very sharp claw on the end of her paw. The sun had climbed high in the storybook sky. The rindle ran wet. The clouds were wrung dry. The dog-faced blonde butterfly, butterfly silk-screened her skirt, and earthy worms toiled in the burbles' dirt. The ants in East Antlia worked out a trade to carry raw crumbs via bucket brigade through the grasshopper's musical country estates with the mineral rights at near rock-bottom rates. The hummingbird flashing a ruby bandana 
from the New Year's Eve blowout in Copacabana was zipping around like a sequined cigar on invisible wings, having made it this far. The golden-eyed sunflower shadowed the sun and the wren was rehearsing an old-timey run. The frog in his wetsuit with scissor-lift legs was diving the reef in the creek-bottom dregs with a laser-bib tongue and the ball-turret eyes of an air, de air defense system for taking out flies. The roses were crimped into decorative knots, while at something like twelve aeronautical knots, the biplanish dragonfly buzz-bombed the top of the purple hibiscus with a boss turboprop. The better boy boasted, the early girl blushed, and the signature spider, unsquabbished, unsquashed, had written an invite, RSVP, in her web to the moth and the fly and the bee. So Citizen Arlo pulled out his list and looked at the sundial he wore on his wrist and flipped through his daybook to certify they were about where they ought to be this time of day. The wet bowl and bone, the downhole and cat, the ants and the spider and the rest of all that. An Arlo brown dog rubbed the back of his neck and ticked off the items. Check, 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 check. He scratched his behind ear and yawned a big lawn and looked for a grassy green spot in the lawn. He circled around it, he squinted, he sniffed, then he flopped himself down at the end of his shift. But out in the garden, the katydids trilled. The trilliums waved and the woodpecker drilled, and Kirby the sneak stroked his long, sneaky chin and blew a big bubble and soaked it all in. The air grew more still. The hummingbird stopped. The cat raised an eyebrow. The soap bubble popped. And that's when it came to him, out of the blue, a novel new way to trick Arlo the true. He laughed in his dewclaw, just thinking it through. He'd steal the downhole, then he'd bury it too. So sneakily, skirtingly, circumferentially, cunningly, cunningly Kirby slunk, nay, providentially, over the ground where the downhole had mound had been stuck in the sun and were lying around. A long-winded way of saying he crept, while Arlo was dreaming of cheese as he slept. He flashed the fourth wall a suave Thomas Crown grin, and then with his forepaws, he filled the hole in. But something out there seemed a little bit off. You could, have all, you could almost have made out the hummingbird cough. On the distant horizon, the earthworms homed in on a talc baby dust devil starting to spin. The walking stick's foot inexplicably broke through the dome of a dewdrop way up in the oak. The dragonfly sputtered, the ants hit a ditch, and the signature spider, for once, dropped a stitch. But Kirby the Sneak didn't see all of that, or the look of concern of Dame Kismet the Cat. No, he cut his eyes north and he peeked to the south, and then he ran off with the hole in his mouth. Now Mr. McCornchowder lived right next door to the Burbles' house in House 44. He worked in his sleeves with a white pompadour and overalls, blue, from the Barbary War. He grew cabbage and carrots, chayote and chard, in the fertilized plot in the back of his yard. He had a whole shed full of handcrafted hose, custom-made rakes, and a watering hose to fill up the pond for his gold medal frogs. But he didn't like holes, and he didn't like dogs. And Kirby the Sneak slunk up to the shed with the hole that he stole and the hat on his head and his back to the wall by the composting pit at a digital seven-piece spymaster kit of lockpicks, night goggles, invisible ink, and a grappling hook if he needed to slink up the side of a freighter, but never mind that. 
And never mind also that Kismet the cat, like a magical leprechaun cat in a poof, had materialized on the top of the roof and was drowsily watching as Mr. McSee stood trimming the leaves of the pincherry tree. Oh, who out there knows if it's fortune or fate that later comes hard on the heels of, of late? Oh, who can distinguish because of from after? Or if it will engender disinterest or laughter? Not even the vigilant high-flying hawk can know something like that, or the boodle-like rock, who could only see now and remember back then and imagine how different things might could have been. One thing about Kirby we do know was when. He dug out the dirt, and he dropped the hole in. When Kirby took off, all you saw was a t tail, a blur in the wind and a vapor-thin trail that streaked through the stuck-open gate with a swoosh and sucked the stuck-open gate shut with a whoosh. And Mr. McCornchowder brandished his shears in a bow-legged poker with smoke in his ears. But Kirby was gone, gone back to his lair, in the Burbles' yard where he pulled up a chair, a Dacron umbrella with fiberglass struts, iced table-leg tea, and pistachio nuts, to watch the hilarity sure to ensue when they noticed the undug smooth knot-hole in lieu of the bound hemispheric depression they knew as the hole in the yard in the land of the true. Arlo woke up from his castles of cheese, slow-footed mailmen, squirrels in the trees, and rolled down car windows to stick his head out of on rides to the country with bugs in his snout. But also the nagging dream vision he'd had of a black and white rascally phantasm clad in the shape of a dog in a hat and a tie that he saw with his extra telepathy eye. Although whether his gift was more gut intuition or some sexier out-of-this-world premonition like an incubus, astral projection, or wraith is a matter for science, dietitians, and faith. It was up to no good, Arlo saw right away. Too theatrically aimless, too blithe or blasé, too dramatic in stopping and sticking his nose too approvingly into the Queen of Scots Rose. With his paws crossed behind him, glancing around, pretending to whistle, towing the ground, and that something was fishy and probably wrong, or it would be, or might could, before very long. He whipped out his scratch pad and went down the list of all of the items that couldn't be missed while Kirby was giggling out of control when he came to the place where there wasn't a hole. He searched in East Antlia, dra dragged the day's brook, and looked in the fir tree and got the big book on exploring the rich life of holes, where he read about canyons, deep space, the occasional head, and historic baronial socks. But the hole that he needed, the one hole, the true hole, the sole lost at large hole to locate was, Arlo found fair to say, null in abstantia, in abstantia gone and not there. Kismet the cat had beamed up to the top of the high-tech umbrella where Kirby the fop took his tea in the shade with a tart, piquant zest of new tennis shoe tongue to more savor the jest with a red gingham tablecloth, slices of lime, and a handheld fan mister through Amazon Prime. Maybe one last short thing. But the sun had begun to slide out of the sky. The brook that ran off to the sea had run dry. The earthy worm's dirt had turned harder as a rock, and the dragonfly's motor was starting to knock. The hummingbird noted the butterfly's gown seemed a little last season, 
little rundown. The antlion ants had abandoned their tasks to put on small ant-face-sized ant masquerade masks to challenge each other at mumbledy pegs, while the grasshoppers fiddled rye jigs on their legs. The bullfrog, the bullfrog, worn out from his scuba emprise, was unwillingly resting his Fabergé eyes, and the signature spider, which just might be worse, had begun in her web under some kind of curse, a chaotic and homespun, untutored, untursed, but unvarnished true eclogue in doggerel verse. And Kirby the Sneak, even Kirby the Crook, knew not to put something like that in a book. But what could he do with stuff all out of whack when a voice like a cat dog said, get the hole back? Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you so much, Greg. That was really a delight. Okay, I'm, and now I'm going to introduce Michelle. Michelle Wolf is the author of Immersion, Conversations During Sleep, and The Keeper of Light. Her poems have also appeared in Poetry, The Hudson Review, The Southern Review, The North American Review, and many other journals and anthologies, as well as on Poetry Daily and Verse Daily. A contributing editor for Poet Lore, she teaches at the Writers' Center in Bethesda and lives in Gaithersburg. The poet Yusuf Kumanyaka wrote about Michelle Wolf's latest book, Music, a paced meditation, one moment in poetic time changed by another again and again. This is the tissue of immersion. The active silence is breathing underneath, holding the shaped telling together. Close quote. That remark beautifully conveys how the poems move from one brilliant, richly expressive image to another, each image tapping meaning from a much larger span of life, embodying not just one family, but generations. As a purveyor of radiant images, the poet resembles the keeper of light in one of her early poems, a dreamed-up creature who wakes up alone and unlocks cabinets of light, allots the portions, strictly, patiently hears requests for additional rays. What a job, she has to be careful. The poem itself pours out just the right amount of light, being true to both inner and outer worlds, and ends perfectly. When she leaves later again, she will dot the night, star by star. Please help me welcome Michelle Wolf. Thank you, Shailene. I very much appreciate that, and thank you all for coming out tonight. I, I would like to start out with uh, the opening poem in uh, my book, Immersion. It's called The Great Tsunami. She recognizes its crest in the way he looks at her. The wave is as vast as the roiling mass in the Japanese print they had poised, paused in front of at the museum capped with ringlets of foam, all surging sinew. That little village along the shore would be totally lost. There is no escaping this. The wave is flooding his heart, and he is sending the flood her way. It rushes over her. Can you look at one face for the whole of a life? Does the moon peer down at the tides and hunger home. I've lived in Maryland for a long time now. I've 
moved in 2001. But before that, I lived for many years in New York, and New York still creeps into my poems sometimes. This is called Late Bloomer. It flares up at sunrise, a blush in a bramble, tumbling out of its bed by the city pavement, a single rose, coral heat at the end of the season. And you are drawn to it, to its scent, its silky layers, to its core. It gathers you into its body until you lose your balance. All you can see is a petaled grid, an endless repetition of roses. You sink swirling into the rose, deep into the rose, into the rose. I hold you to me, love. I am 44, and you love, you my love, you have planted me. Some years ago, I accompanied a cousin to visit a sleepaway camp she was considering for her kids. And I remember several relatives at the time mentioning that my uncle, my father's brother, had gone to that camp when he was a kid. But nobody mentioned to me that my father, who had died when I was only six, had also attended that camp. I didn't learn that till after the fact. This is called Pocono Lakeside. As I was guided by the director through the thick space of these rooms, worn sparrow brown, and strode with the August sun on my shoulders across this particular acre of grass, nobody had told me this was the place where you had summered as a boy. I have weathered my fourth decade, older now than you were when you died. I can barely remember you, yet I can see you, not as my father, but as my son. You are age nine. The downpour divides into two massive stage curtains parting. You bolt from the bunk, loudly racing with your chums, down the slippery hill to the dock, your cape of a towel flapping as if ready to lift you airborne. You are the smallest. Still, you always run in the front. You do not know how beautiful you are, of course, squinting against the sun, the flame that escapes behind the gray vapor for hours, sometimes for days. You cannot see that from the beginning it has been eyeing you from afar, that it has focused its golden spotlight just for you. Uh, in this next poem, oh, I've lost my place here. There are some Chinese uh, words, but I, they'll be very clear what they uh, mean in the context of the poem. But I do apologize if anybody speaks Chinese that my pronunciation is leaves a lot to be desired. Anyway, this is called Immersion. We practice the language, froth of words, that form the slosh and current of your life before you could speak. Ni hao ma, we greet our teacher, who passes out toys and asks us to repeat as she holds up flashcards. Panda, Zhang Mao, followed by baby, mother, daughter, pardon, mother, father, dog, cat. All of the girls in the circle 
and the sole boy are Chinese toddlers. Most of the mothers and fathers are middle-aged, white. At summer's close, we carried you down the blue-tiled steps of the synagogue's bath, a swirl of piped-in rainwater, municipal water, and a bit of chlorine, and swiftly dipped you three times, the water snug to all your surfaces. At the top of the steps, a trio of rabbis chanted the blessings, calligraphied midnight blue on the pale blue walls. I recited along in a language I had never formally learned, some of the words and all the intonations familiar. Little flame, you will be the birthright of who you are, independent of water or vocabulary. We work on the words. That's why in the post office, just a few weeks after we had brought you home, when the Asian American clerk in her 60s spotted you soaking up your new world from your stroller, puckered up her face, then gazed again at me, and with accented English, clenching my heart in her hands, inquired, she's yours? I managed to answer, yes, and I'm hers. Why couldn't she see I had become Chinese? I'd like to read a few books, for, a few poems, a few books, that would take a while. I'll read a few poems from uh, my earlier uh, book, Conversations During Sleep. For my mother, I sharpen more and more to your likeness every year, your mirror in height, autonomous flying cloud of hair, in torso, curve of the leg, in high-arched, prim, meticulous feet. I watch my aging face in a speeding time-lapse, become yours. Notice the eyes, their heavy, inherited sadness, the inertia that sags the cheeks, the sense of limits that sets the grooves along the mouth. Grip my hand. Let me show you the way to revolt against what we are born to, to bash through the walls, to burn a warning torch in the darkness, to leave home. Astigmatism. When I held smooth as satin to zip up your wedding dress, frosted with flounces and pearl-beaded filigree, a rococo confection more sugary than the cake, and watched as you swiveled slowly to face me, all floaty notes, pure flute, so still as I situated the baby's breath and the veil. How could I have told you? knowing you'd learn it soon enough, my perfect doll, how fuzzy the world is, how the clearest picture, frill-tipped gladioli in primary colors, can dissolve into darkness, how the eye can fool you, presenting a straight or diagonal path when the earth is curved. It can be corrected, I tell you, a half-truth, when you call me to say you can no longer focus, nothing is sharp. And I can hear how the light is bent 
in your voice, the shadows behind what you say, while in my mind's eye you stare at me, blinking, a week old, the day you were placed in my arms. Able to distinguish little but two black moons, my eyes dancing in the fog. That this was the most exquisite instance of my childhood never changes. Nor does the decade between us, or the way you looked up at my face after racing out the front door to greet me, eight years later, almost toppling me over, wringing my waist. Two sisters, so nearsighted, that upon my return to you, before I resumed my groping tromp through the world, you held me like a reference point, a place you will always find, the sheen of your eyes announcing my bearings, as much as your clear shout of my name, as your words, you're here. Um, before I published these books, I published this little book, a chapbook. And a chapbook, for those of you unfamiliar with the format, is a very small little book, 20 to 24 pages, usually comes out in a very limited uh, press run, maybe 100 copies, 50 copies, 100 copies. And uh, so that's what a chapbook is. So I'm going to read a poem called Poetry Chapbook. Does it have a spine, the bookseller chided, reluctant to stock a collection with less evident heft than its stonier kin? It has a thin but determined spine. Stable bound, I replied. It stands on its own, and when you open it, its mottled white wings will carry you high on that spine across echoing dry river canyons riddled with petroglyphs beyond hidden cabins dotting tree-glutted mountaintops. A gray-spired city, indulgent to street-corner marionettists and blaring traffic that hugs the square until it lands you past miles of sea as subtle as twilight upon your doorstep with your heart wanting to open its spare room to strangers. Everything crisp. I'll read um, two more. Um, thank you to Shailene for giving you a little taste. Um, the Keeper of Light was one of my very first poems. So it's about 40 years old, but I, it's still one of my favorites. The little one listens, but never reveals what she knows. By day, she controls the light that filters across the roofs through trees on furrows of plaintive faces. She wakes up alone and unlocks cabinets of light, allots the portions strictly, patiently hears requests for additional rays. What a job. She has to be careful. Not long ago, in a moment of passion, she almost gave away the whole reserve. Phones incessantly ring. Amazing. Someone thanks her for light. She has to hang up. Her cheeks are ballooning, deflating, as if she were some nervous fish. She scoots in the broom closet, fits on the funnel. Her face is beaming. She targets the freshly erupting supply into a spare metal cash box 
hides it under newspapers in her desk. No one has noticed. Flushed, she sorts through the mail, coos a wilted sigh. So many tasks, yet the barest assistance. When she leaves, later again, she will dot the night, star by star. And I'll finish out with um, one more poem from Immersion. Archaeology. The storm had bitten away the shoreline, leaving behind a whiskered nine-foot cliff, and underneath it the hard-packed sand was littered with starfish. Jutting out of the cliff bottom, stripped free of its tomb at water's edge, was the back third of a tan metallic 1952 Buick, license lost. No cars aside from Jeeps were allowed on the island. The ocean darted forward and back, inspecting its find. This morning, the splintering ribs of the hull of an 18th century ship arose in a spongy crater of mud at the site of the World Trade Center, 20 feet below street level. Artifacts are the accounts we leave behind. We leave them buried beneath what is buried, much as we live in our beauty now. We may expose only the husk of ourselves but embedded and patient in our subterranean core, removed from use for so long that most have become forgotten. Our every memory, every gesture, every meandering thought, and that's just the library. Jammed into the great room, some wearing boots, some barefoot, our ancestors are dancing. We can feel them in our bones. They're stomping the floorboards. Thank you, Michelle. Um, thank you, Greg. Thank you, Hillary. If we could have the three of you up here for the Q&A. And I will pass the mic around to uh, everyone that has a question because we are podcasting the event, so we want to have your questions preserved as well. So who would like to ask the first question? i got an answer. <laughs> <laughs> that I, that I, I heard from Howard Nimrod a long time ago. The answer is, um, in theory, yes, but in, in practice, it occurs so seldom as to be inconsequential. <laughs> Sticking to it. <laughs> Um, maybe um, could you each talk a little about some poets who have been important to you, poets that you figure in dialogue with, or maybe not just poets, but writers that have been in conversation with your work? Well, I'll start. Um, in conversation with my work, I'm not sure. I can say writers that were hugely influential uh, to me yeah. in, in the beginning. Um, I was mentioning to, to you, Shailene and Tracy, that one of my um, first jobs when I was in New York, I worked for the publishing house Scribner's, then an independent house, and then in its effort to try to remain independent and not bought out by a larger company, it merged with the publishing house Athenaeum, which um, 
was run by the son of Alfred Knopf, Alfred Knopf, Pat Knopf, and um, there was an amazing poetry editor named Harry Ford, and he had one of the most stellar poetry lists. Um, and so among those poets were um, W.S. Merwin, Philip Levine, Donald Justice, Mark Strand, Mona Van Doyne, I'm trying to think of, I, I, I'll, somebody I will skip accidentally, but these books became almost my textbooks, and I eventually had the chance to study with most of them. I was living in New York, and people would, would find their way into, and, and teach either, not always in the university setting, sometimes at the 92nd Street Y, which has a wonderful poetry program in other places. So I would say those were, some of my biggest influences in the beginning. I was uh, really influenced by a lot of Chinese poets in translation early on. Um, I, I had this great anthology um, that had belonged to my father. Um, my, my dad was a, uh, a physicist at NASA, but during his college years, he had wanted to be a writer. And so he had all these fantastic books of poems, um, uh, Pound and uh, William Carlos Williams and, and all these things around the house. Um, and then I would say that as I you know, learned more about poetry, uh, really uh, Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell became hugely important. Um, and you know, to say that, that those were influences, it's it's ridiculous. You can never match Bishop and Lowell, um, but just um, the concreteness of their work, um, uh, the the specificity, and um, I think the the emotional power um, was really influential. Well, since I just mentioned it, a poet that meant a lot to me very. Early was Howard Demerov, and um, and a few others, sort of of that same generation, Richard Wilbur and, and Donald Justice, who mentioned, and Anthony Hecht. And I got to know all of them, um, not in a classroom so much, but um, kind of outside. And um, so the example of their poems was really important, but also just the way they carried themselves as scholars and writers meant a lot. Kind of piggybacking off of what Greg just said, I had a conversation with Dora Malik a couple weeks ago, um, and she said, it's funny because I always introduce myself first as a teacher and second as a poet. Um, I've been writing poetry since I was eight years old, which would be 21 years. Um, it is my first love, I talk about it like a lover, and my partner is jealous of that. Uh, we're where does poetry fall for all of you in your hierarchy of needs? Um, how do you identify? That's a trick question. Is your wife in the room? <laughs> yeah, I remember moving uh, to, to Atlanta and, um, and I got introduced to the neighbors this place. I, he's a poet. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, just whatever you do. And and the, my the lady that lived next door, she uh, she started going on about, oh, I just love poetry. I got all the pretty styles and stuff like that. 
And her husband goes, I don't much care for it myself. I just said not read it. I'm like, see, I'm with you. Uh, well, I think it's a hard, it's a hard question for me to answer right now, um, since I am really preoccupied with having a, a baby <laughs> at the moment. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely have, have friends who are, who are poets for whom poetry is their greatest love of all writing. And I think um, for me, I, I feel like I, I read sort of more widely um, than just that. And so it's more that, that books and, and you know, different genres are incredibly important to my life. Um, but having that, that close um, attention paid to poetry, I think, is something that I still, you know, I, I have to make time for it, as opposed to having, um, you know, the, the freedom to just simply focus on it uh, with all of my power. I think it, it is difficult even if, when, to find a place for one's writing within one's um, professional world sometimes allows that time for that, but not always within the family obligations. And, you know, it is hard, but it is my my biggest creative satisfaction. There's no question. I remember once I uh, introduced myself at a at a party. Some said, "Well, what do you do?" I said, "I'm a poet, and I earn a living as a magazine editor, and I enjoy my." I didn't say the additional, and I enjoy that too, um, but. Someone thought that was that was the terrific, you know. That whereas other people just won't get it, it just they don't, just don't relate. So you kind of lean toward people who, who do relate, who do kind of get it. It's it's almost irrelevant whether it matters to the world at large. It matters to me. It matters to those who care about um, who care about poetry, to, for whom it's a passion. For they are moved by it. They um, uh, and uh, I'm not really in. Uh, all I can do is 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 write what I need to do and do what I need to do, and then try to disseminate it. You know, to, but um, uh, I I I have had in my life because I haven't always, I haven't really worked in academia. I've taught, but not, but often in a community setting. And um, I've, you, you do get asked sometimes to justify, you, even Charles Simic, who was one of my early teachers, the former poet laureate, I remember reading a story somewhere, I remember where I read it, where somebody asked him, are you still doing that, you know? <laughs> um, still doing, still writing those poems, still? Um, uh, we do it because we have to do it, because it's, uh, it's who we are, and, uh, and thank goodness we've discovered it's who we are, and it is as satisfying as it is. Um, excuse me, I have a question. Um, so we've been talking a lot about the process of writing the poems, but I was wondering if each of you could share a little bit about 
how the process of submitting your poems, either full manuscript or um, sending poems off to magazines, has been for you? <laughs> well, I don't mind starting that. I teach a class at the Writer's Center in Bethesda called Getting Your Poetry Published. So I have to be on top of, you know, the right ways to, to, to have success at that. And, uh, you know, you, I have often gone through periods where I'm writing much more and not really paying much attention to marketing individual poems or getting a manuscript, uh, a new manuscript together. I have just recently gotten a new manuscript together and just trying to get that uh, more perfected, you know, be before it goes out into the world a bit. But uh, a lot has changed. I'm not sure where I can really, uh, how much you want to know about this, but a lot has changed in that in, since I first started submitting poems because there are so many more people writing and there's so much more competition. There are more journals. There are, if you look at poets and writers, you know, um, listing of, of, um, of journals, there are at least a thousand. So there's, but there's a lot of competition. So, um, um, I always go first to where there's been interest in the past, and then sometimes, um, you know, one, um, those editors want to see work again, and you develop an ongoing relationship, whereas even if they don't take it, for instance, I'm going to read a poem when we come back to read a poem, and that particular piece was ran recently in the Hudson Review. I first got poems published in the Hudson Review in the 1980s. And then I will say there were years at a time where I didn't submit to the Hudson Review, but there was a 20-some year gap. And then they accepted another poem. Um, the journals only have a select, you know, even web journals, there's still only a finite amount that they're publishing. There's just a lot of competition. So the one thing that's changed a lot in, in, uh, in recent years is it used to be that journals would never allow uh, multiple, not the simultaneous submissions. They would say, we want exclusive look-see of this for three or four months, and they'd get back to you, and it would be a yes or a no. But now it's opened up where um, they don't like what's called multiple submissions, like several submissions at a time, but simultaneous to one journal and then another, and maybe six others. <laughs> so if you have a lot of work circulating, and you are very attuned to the journal and whether the work is, is to the taste and to the sensibility of those particular editors, if you're, um, whether it's a good fit, then um, you know, just send a lot out at once is, is probably my best advice. But um, I'll let others speak. I think Submitting is always kind of brutal. It's really hard to be patient, especially if you're impatient like I am. And it's hard when you sort of, you, you try to play the odds. You'll, you'll send things you think are your best pieces to magazines that have a really, um, you know, uh, good reputation, that are really well known. Um, but then knowing that your, your odds are so bad, you'll also send some of those really strong pieces to, to magazines you might not think much of. And even if you don't consider it to be the best magazine, you might be rejected anyway. Um, so I think I, I've had the most success um, just in the, 
periods when I've really been quite dogged about it and I've submitted and, and had things out to 20 or 30 places at once. Um, and also when I've uh, looked farther afield, I, I, I felt like I had a really good reception um, when I got um, a poem in an English journal. Um, and that led to uh, other publications in, uh, in a different uh, English outlet. So, you know, to me that was really interesting, um, seeing that there might be um, just more possibility uh, outside of the States. Well, I, there, there, there's a lot one could say, but I think, um, just, just briefly, um, if you look at the acknowledgments pages of the poets that you like, it's a good place to find places, because you're likely to have share some aesthetic perspectives. Keep really good records of what you send and when and what happened. And keep in mind, I think I tell people, that um, if you get your poem accepted somewhere, it doesn't mean you're a great poet who's going to go ahead and win the Nobel Prize, necessarily. But if you get rejected, it doesn't mean you won't. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, so we'd love to hear one more poem from each of you before we have time for uh, buying books from all the poets. Everyone has books, so it's really great to support the poets with, by buying their work. Um, so let's hear a final poem from each of you. Uh, this poem takes place in Sconset, Nantucket, and it's called Privilege. It is the edge of the beginning the sun-spattered sweep of the Atlantic, its salt breath levitating you each time you pause at a vantage point on the bluff. The village cottages, boxed in cedar shingle fringes buffed to gray, are centuries old. All have names, Old Lang Syne, House of Lords, and sprout hedges of hydrangeas, masses of blue globes, perky petaled breasts, aloof to their allure. At sunrise, seals arc like tubby dolphins, nuzzle heads together, flippers slapping high fives close to shore. The ocean enfolds you, ever breathing in your ear. And who is to say you cannot own this place, that it cannot own you? The houses sit so near their neighbors, Sound carries, a baby's shout, a bicycle crunching against the crushed shells of the lane, but never drowns out the churn of the surf, the wind as it sifts through spiky beach grass at Rosa and Gosa. Pink button roses, they stand watch at their shrubby command, fencing the beach from the road. Shrug off if you wish, the men dressed up to die in brick-colored pants. Claim the bluff, the cottage is lost in time, this place of great bones, Sconset. Claim the cracked whale fin bone, a stone too heavy to lift, on the ramshackle porch of the former fisherman's shack you lease, its rickety windows encasing the ocean in every room, the vast beach vacant, the season. Claim your heartbeat, your mind, which boots up on cue its slideshow of watery vistas. Your feet scuff the ground or hover above it, 
Claim 80-some years if you're lucky. Dusted with sand. This is called Rabbit Island, Fukunoshima, Japan. On this island in the inland sea, removed from maps, punished with chemicals, too much of nothing much is born. Rabbits cross-section the cliff face, and the ground is slippery with rubbish. I, too, am mostly feral. In the ruins of the poison gas works, I make my hand a dewlap, then a stone. So this is where I start to bleed in earnest, as if my body was just waiting for the trace of sulfur mustard to let go. Of course, the animals are everywhere, and every color, heather, midnight, spoiled cream, and mottled dawn. They are the shade of formstone and of sewage, of last night's blistered squid. Here, where the putt-putt ferry practically runs itself to the ground, watch their thwarted thrusts and soft evasions. Their eyes are pitiless as seeds. We have been sent here on some tired expedition to catalog the endless types of indeterminacy and decay. Even the A-bomb dome, that moralizing skeleton, hollows me out. I am absorbing my own terrible disaster through my heart and skin. I am learning firsthand how blight is muscular and persistent as the current, how the family campground, cordoned off, can keep out everything. Amidst these decommissioned forts, squat toilets, and half-moon cabbages decomposing into radium dials, I might do anything. But this is all there is. Six holes of sandy golf, some wayward palms, one overrun hotel, sunburned and fallow. I am nobody's mother. In this, uh, Kirby tends to get more ink than Arlo, um, but I was going to read this little bit about Arlo, who is descendant of um, dogs that work for the Pinkerton Agency, and um, and so there's a little mention of uh, Baltimore here at the end, and this was a real attempt to uh, assassinate Abraham Lincoln in 1861. But before we get there, now Arlo was back at his usual post with his coat derby hat and a deputy ghost, the even more steadfast and sure of the two from the lawless Old West with the Pinkerton crew, where the slow saloon door swung and gunslingers drew of his great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy true, with the patience of maces and a coat of a hue of the riverbed sandstone the poppies rode through. And of whom legend holds, he made even the worst desperados of crooks, most feared and accursed, like black Cherokee Bill and bad prairie dog Dave, who would throw down with lightning and spit in its grave, start to quake in their kerchiefs and let the truth slip with the flash of a fang and the curl of his lip. And the old timers tell he could wait out a rock, that the rock would give up. And it wasn't just talk. He could stare a surrender sign out of a clock and he needed two shadows to go for a walk. And he looked at this one big old barn door so long that the paint just fell off and the roof tagged along and you can still read to this day in the sun how he hopped on the train in the year 61 for the overnight shift to the Camden Street Station to save Mr. Lincoln and maybe a nation from the murder and knives of the Baltimore plot when the car with the true was as far as they got. 
Thank you again, Greg, Hillary, Michelle, for sharing your work tonight. Thank you all of you for coming out to hear poetry. So thank you. Good night. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.